0: Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines, I'm your host Sydney Whiting. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. This week's show is a special edition of BTH, presented to you by the 66th UN Commission on the Status of Women Delegation of the Young Diplomats of Canada. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at Beyond Headlines, that's B-Y-O-N-D underscore Headlines. I'll take a moment to introduce myself. I am a first year undergraduate student from the University of Lethbridge, studying political science and environmental studies. I currently serve as the communications coordinator for our YDC team, which is why I'm so excited to share this episode with you today. I've been engaged in community and climate organizing for the past few years, and I care deeply about sustainable development that ensures all of our communities are supported through a just energy transition. I am passionate about youth engagement in these discussions and as the youngest member on this team, it's been a pleasure to learn from and work alongside my colleagues. We have an exciting show lined up for you all today. Our delegates from the Young Diplomats have been working hard to bring you an episode that highlights some of the critical discussions related to CSW. But first, a little bit of background on our organization and the conference itself. The Young Diplomats of Canada is a national, nonpartisan and nonprofit organization that promotes the leadership of young Canadians through engagements at international conferences through our delegation teams, through research projects and advocacy initiatives. Our CSW delegation was selected in the summer of 2021, and we've been working to prepare for CSW through stakeholder meetings, hosting a panel event, and collaboration with other national organizations over the past few months. The Commission on the Status of Women is an opportunity for thousands of delegates, representing government, civil society, and youth teams like ourselves, to gather and discuss and commit to an ambitious agenda for global gender equality. This year's primary theme was achieving gender equality and the empowerment of all women and girls in the context of climate change, environmental and disaster risk reduction policies and programs. Unfortunately, due to the ongoing challenges related to COVID-19 and the pandemic, the events were moved online for civil society representatives. Nevertheless, our delegation still had an amazing time connecting with leaders from all over the world. Most of the audio you'll hear today was taken from an online panel event we hosted as a team on February 15, 2022, featuring an impressive group of YDC alumni working at the intersection of climate and gender policy. I'm so excited for you to meet them and to hear their perspectives. As you hear from each of the speakers in this episode, you'll also have a chance to listen to their introductions, so I won't do that now. First, Paige, our Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator, will discuss inclusivity and accessibility in relation to the CSW agenda. Next, we'll hear from Lucy, our Engagement Coordinator, as she walks us through a discussion on the primary theme, focusing on the intersection of gender and climate. Lastly, we'll hear from Maitland, our head delegate, as she asks the panelists their advice for youth looking to get involved in these topics and at these forums. I hope you enjoy.
1: Hello, my name is Paige Percy, and I'm currently a Master of Arts student in Environmental Policy at the Memorial University of Newfoundland. Outside of school, I'm an ambassador for Plan International Canada, IBM STEM for Girls program, and sit on the Canadian Council for Youth Prosperity. I'm also really excited to have been a delegate for the Commission on the Status of Women with the Young Diplomats of Canada. I applied to be involved with YDC because I'd realized a lot of the people I look up to, some of whom you'll hear from today on the podcast, got invaluable experience at YDC. As someone who wants to enter politics and policy, YDC provided a wonderful opportunity for a hands-on experience. For our delegation, I was the Diversity and Inclusion Engagement Coordinator. As a queer woman, this was really important to me, especially in a space such as CSW, which can be very heteronormative. Where places like CSW are often inaccessible, colonial, and not inclusive to the general population. Ahead of CSW, we held a panel event where we discussed climate change, gender, and youth empowerment. A key theme that emerged was inclusivity and accessibility across the questions we asked. Specifically, when we posed the questions, do you think that international activism and diplomacy is accessible and inclusive for young people? Or are there changes needed to help youth get more involved? Moreover, during this era of COVID and beyond, is the big multilateral conference model still useful for diplomacy? Passionate about energy policy and climate diplomacy, Carla Guillaume is dedicated to making our global village a better place for future generations. She's currently working as a commercial desk officer at Global Affairs Canada and the Division for Bilateral Relations with Western and Central Africa. Carla is also currently pursuing a Masters of Public Administration at ENAP. Carla is YDC alum, having participated in the 2020 and 2021 G7 Youth Summit. She has also served on the WSP USA Youth Advisory Council for Climate, Resilience, and Sustainability as a member of the Black Diplomas Academy.
2: I think multilateral engagement in general is definitely effective. Not only it allows for smaller voices and people for more marginalized communities to take part in the discussion, and also make sure that we have this more collective, what well, we have more collective action and this sense of a dialogue really around issues that are affecting our communities. But if you ask me if those spaces are accessible, I will definitely say no. And even within youth advocacy, um, those spaces are not necessarily accessible. When we think about diversity, we talk about ethnic background, uh, we talk about gender, but one thing I've noticed is we tend to forget about social classes. I mean, people who take part in delegations within YDC tend to have more or less the same background in the sense that they've been to university. They're usually part of the more or less same uh, social circles. And in that sense, they have a very similar profile. And it's been very hard to reach, to reach out to people who don't necessarily go to university and people who feel like they don't have the right profile to voice their opinion in international forums like, like the Y7 or other forums that exist. And I know the information and the opportunity exists but we have to think about how we, you know, we share that information with disadvantaged communities. And when we offer opportunities to people with different backgrounds to join, we need to make sure that we also offer them the resources to feel empowered, um, to really take part in the conversation. We want to make sure that there's always this sense of inclusion in our society. And I do feel that youth movements um, are not very successful at that um, oftentimes. So I, I'd be very interested to see how we can make sure that people who have different academic backgrounds, uh, different that, that are from different uh, social classes can really be part of those forums in the future. Next up, here's Julie.
1: Julie Siegel works in sustainable finance and environmental advocacy, advancing investment capital for equitable climate action. She's currently a senior manager of climate finance at the Environmental Defense. Previously, she held a portfolio of impact investments at the McConnell Foundation. She was selected as a 2021 fellow in the Maison de l'Innovation Sociale's Civic Incubator and as a delegate to the 2021 OECD Forum by YDC. Siegel volunteers with various community and youth led environmental groups and advises on strategies for impact investing. She's won national and global awards for her work integrating environmental justice into sustainable finance. Siegel graduated from McGill University with a Bachelor of Commerce.
3: I'm delighted this panel is discussing both, you know, the intersections of youth and women, but there's so many different intersections that compound to make this type of work so much more challenging, you know, whether it be race, class, geography, that ends up really creating compounding limitations for for people to engage. First of all, on the opportunity side, right, just access to that event and then to the decision making, but also on the confidence to participate in that, right, the willingness to step up, to step forward and to uh, trust that you have something compelling to share, which of course everybody does. So that's a really important barrier that remains and needs to be broken down. On that note, I would say it's excellent that we've been moving towards virtual, right? We're able to have this conversation today and so many others. But it does create a huge disparity for a digital divide here. And that's something that's still huge in Canada, the really disproportionate access to internet services for Indigenous communities and other rural communities, uh, which is something that at, at this point is very limiting to fully inclusive participation from all different facets of youth and and different uh intersectionalities as well. So so that's something that I think needs to be considered a bit more as we're running forward with this positive but also challenging virtual virtual formats. And then another point that I'll talk about often when we discuss either women or youth uh, or both in climate policy is a, mis- a mismatch between passion and power. So we have so many young people, so many women coming forward in the climate movement and really driving things forward on, at the grassroots level, at the direct action level. But when it comes to decision-making, there's a huge void. And when it comes to multilateral international conferences, that's one of the ways that it ends up being so challenging because we face climate change really at the local, at the individual level, right? We'll have floods in in our neighbourhoods. We'll have fires in our neighbourhoods. But that's so far removed from the executives, the senior negotiators, who are representing us at a conference like COP, which creates a huge, a huge void between passion and power. So those who are really advocating for the cutting edge of change, what we need to really succeed on our climate goals versus those who are empowered to actually make those decisions that will improve, uh, improve the situation for all of us. So I think that's a huge gap, not to put that only on the multilateral negotiation structure, but in the way that welcomes or does not welcome the youth voices.
1: Lastly, we'll hear from Senator Mary Lou McFedron. Senator McFedron is a fierce advocate and has dedicated her career to gender equality across Canada. Moreover, she's a lawyer and educator who specialized in teaching and developing systemic and sustainable change mechanisms to promote equality and diversity. She's even created her own intergenerational models of evidence-based advocacy and lived rights. We had the opportunity to speak to her during a separate stakeholder meeting earlier this year, and she offered insight into her role in facilitating youth access to CSW through her role in the government.
4: I'm very grateful that I was appointed to the Senate in 2016 because it allowed me to make a transition from being a university professor specializing in human rights who had by then for close to 20 years, been facilitating young people, mostly students, uh, but not exclusively students, and actually not exclusively young people either, because when I was at York University and first started to realize that part of my role was to actually facilitate direct engagement in the UN system. That understanding and engaging in multilateralism at the earliest possible a- age for Canadians was actually strengthening our own democracy. So that, that really became a guiding principle for me in my work as a, as a researcher and, a, and then a prof. And what I was able to do coming into the Senate was continue that facilitation, but as a senator and my first year in the Senate was really rough and I really loved what I was doing before. And I really struggled. Uh, On numerous occasions, I asked the question whether I really should just say thank you so much, but I'm going to go back to teaching. And some of my former students that were part of the group that were delegates that I'd helped to facilitate in New York asked to meet with me in the midst of CSW. And so we sat down and they said, Senator, we've we've heard that you're thinking of quitting and we just want to tell you that we've been to the UN with you as a prof and we've been to the UN with you as a senator. It's better as a senator. You can do more for us. So we want you to stay. And that actually had quite an influence on me in terms of, okay, I can actually facilitate more access I myself don't go, don't jump through the same hoops of becoming a delegate um, and taking someone's place in civil society. It opens up a whole spot in civil society if I'm going in, in my uh, government okay. role. And it's also easier, it turned out, it's easier to facilitate calling meetings. Plus, I have more resources as a senator than I ever had as a prof. And so... I was able when it was possible to go to the UN to make a priority out of my budget and pay for and host orientation sessions for the civil society leaders and and many, many more young people. Um, I couldn't pay expenses, but I could create venues and make sure that they were appropriate and make sure that there was food. Because, you know, you will know that once you get to New York, that can be a real issue for young people is, you know, you you basically use all your resources to get there, and then you have to deal with really challenging costs in terms of accommodation, food, etc. The other thing that I, I found was that I could facilitate access, actual access, because I could ask the mission, I could say to the Canadian mission these are all Canadians. These are all CSO delegates. I know them all and we need your help in getting here, there, whatnot, you know? So that is certainly an observation that I would make.
1: Reflecting on the questions we've asked and had discussions about over the last several months, it's really clear that more change needs to be made for inclusivity and accessibility. I think something that everyone highlights here is that equal isn't equitable and we really need to take active steps in making sure that everything we do is equitable. Although everyone had equal access to CSW66, it certainly wasn't equitable. The online nature allowed people to join globally who normally may not be able to afford to go to New York. But for people in countries where internet is unstable, it was nearly impossible for them to participate freely, let alone having to deal with the time change, which made it really difficult for people to navigate. However, I do want to recognize that there were a lot of accessibility features that CSW66 should continue to use in the future, such as live streaming of the events for everyone, a closed captioning in multiple languages, and recording the events. Inclusivity and accessibility mean so many different things, which makes blanket solutions nearly impossible. However, it reinforces the need to integrate inclusivity and accessibility into all of our conversations and actions. This is something I think CSW66 at times struggled to do. A lot of the conversations and topics at CSW66 were so siloed into thinking about heteronormative, able-bodied, white women living in the West that we don't really get a full picture of reality. Or when we do discuss more diverse populations, it's simply about stating that they are the most vulnerable and are disproportionately impacted by policy choices. The biggest challenge, especially in making these statements in conversations, is translating them into action. The sentiment of being stuck in conversation resonates a lot with what we've heard and experienced with people all throughout our journey to CSW. Our journey to CSW has been a long one. We started last year in August of 2021, and we're now just wrapping up at the beginning of April 2022. Throughout this time, we've had the wonderful opportunity to collaborate, connect, and learn from so many people. The whole time, I felt really honored and lucky to have had these opportunities. A couple personal highlights include being able to talk with Bob Ray, the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, attending an event on right-wing hate and extremism in Canada, and being able to speak at the Mediators Beyond Borders international event during CSW. Additionally, I really appreciate the many staffers, advisors, and assistants who are frank and honest with us about their experiences and the challenges they encounter working with gender, climate, and youth. The advice and things I've learned along the way will be things I take forward for years to come. In particular, I want to take what I've learned and continue to work for more inclusive and accessible policy.
5: Welcome back, everyone. My name is Lucy, and I'm proudly born and raised in Montreal. I am also currently a master student at Leiden University in the Netherlands, studying international relations and diplomacy. Over the past years, I have worked in academia, provincial and federal governments, and now in the corporate sector. I decided to get involved with Young Diplomats of Canada, as I would one day aspire to work in foreign affairs. Getting access to such prestigious events as UNCSW is rare, especially for young people. And so it is important to seize every opportunity. As the engagement coordinator, my role was quite literally to engage with both the stakeholders and the larger public of Canadian youth. As such, it was important for me to try to get to the bottom of Canadian youth experiences, particularly on the topics of gender and climate, as it was the specific intersection that was under scrutiny at this year's conference. As I have just established, a priority theme for CSW66 conference focused on pursuing gender equality and women's empowerment in the context of climate change. So we asked our panelists, why do you think that addressing both gender and climate hand in hand is important? Here's Carla back with us to discuss her ideas.
2: We often hear that, you know, women are disproportionately affected by climate change. And this sounds very catchy, but I feel like... um, Oftentimes, we fail to explain exactly why what we mean when we say that, and it's very important that we explain that to people. Um, women are already stuck in a system where they are disadvantaged, and I'm not only talking about you know developing countries. It's also here. We've seen that with the pandemic. Whenever there is a crisis, uh, women play a role in our societies. In our societies, that really ask them to be at the forefront. Um, of any crisis and because of that what the well the climate crisis is going to involve a lot of issues for women how they're going to plan out their lives I mean we're young women Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we want to have kids but I know a lot of women who are thinking about potentially um, having kids not because they don't have enough money to have those kids but because they're wondering what type of world they will you know in what type of world they will have those kids. So it is impacting even, you know, the decisions that we're not necessarily thinking about. But overall, I would say that women play very specific roles in their communities. They are at the forefront of healthcare. They raise our children. They, uh, in a lot of developing countries, they are still the one at home making food. They are entrepreneurs as well. Uh, They don't get to sit in a lot of big corporations a lot of women have to be in developing country street vendors. But even here, a lot of us are very creative and we have to have uh, what we call side hustle. So we're going to be impacted in ways that are very, very different than what we tend to think about when we think about climate change. And overall, other things that impact women sometimes is um, the lack of accessibility to finances, well, to financial resources a lack of accessibility to lens. So there's a lot of things that are impacting impacting women. And the reason why gender is so important is because we need to make sure that the solutions are as intersectional than the struggle that women face on an everyday, uh, on a daily basis. And because of this specific role we play in societies, even today here in Canada, even if, you know, we tend to have a lifestyle that's more equal to men, We need to make sure that women are included in discussions to make sure that, you know, their struggle, their um, concerns are taken into account. And I've worked in Haiti for a year. I can tell you that this is something that's very important in, you know, small island nations, for instance, where, as I said, women really play a battle role in economies, in social circles. And unfortunately, they're not part of the decision making process. Uh, Most of the time, they're not as educated. They don't have the training. So gender and climate change is important. It's not just important, it's vital. There's no climate discussion if there's no woman involved. It's just going to fail. Whatever solution we come up with is going to have a lot of shortcomings. So this is why I think, you know, gender and climate change is so, it's so entangled.
3: Here's Julie to elaborate. It's also undeniable gender and climate go hand in hand, and i mean it's it's often seen as more acute in in the global south countries, right where there are more ingrained traditional gender roles often uh, women are often the leading labor around food and water uh, women are more likely to experience food insecurity in in global south countries um, but i've I've lived entire, my life entirely in, in Canada, Turtle Island. And so I have clear vision into, into how this does persist in global North countries. And I'll return to what I said earlier about this huge gap between passion and power when it comes to climate change work. So women are typically perceived as, as leaders in the care economy. They are disproportionately uh, represented in the care economy. We've seen that during COVID. Where the majority of nurses, the majority of teachers are women and are affected by economic shifts in distinctly different ways based on those demographic representations. So anecdotally, this is also true in climate work. We'll see women are more prominent, more present in philanthropy, NGO work, advocacy type work. And we also see in, um, you know, traditional indigenous advocacy groups. It's often a more patriarchal society where there's often women leading, for example, on water advocacy, uh, pieces like that. And it shows that women have, for one way, for one reason or another, really come forward on the climate issue to advocate for much stronger action. And I think the problem there is that they aren't, based on the structural Forces in our economy, there aren't offered those positions of power to make the decisions and to drive forward those agendas that we're, we're so deeply advocating for. So, for example, under 30% of climate leaders internationally of people representing at, at the uh, international COP agreements are women. So, I'm sure we can all do that math, but over 50% of of the uh, of the world and under 30 percent of climate leaders is not fairly represented. And then if you compound that with the fact that women are more often involved in climate work front lines in their communities, it, it creates an even bigger void there. And I'll offer an example where just last week the government of Canada had a consultation for greenhouse gas emissions cap for the oil and gas sector, undeniably a huge factor for climate change potentially a huge milestone for Canada on climate change, if we cap our emissions from the oil and gas sector. They had five people invited to that conversation to brief the government on perspective. One of them was was a colleague from Climate Action Network, Kara Briette, and she was speaking from the climate perspective, saying, goodness, we need to limit this cap with all sorts of data onto why this is so important and why it needs to be moved quickly. And three of the other four representatives were men and the other four representatives were all representing the the oil and gas industry, saying their their arguments for it for however they think uh, they will be a part of the of the climate movement. So I think that's a really really concrete example of the difference between women advocating for stronger climate action for being potentially at the brunt of climate mismanagement, but then not necessarily being offered equal opportunity to share those perspectives and to advocate for change as men still are.
5: Next, we'll be hearing from Anjum Sultana, another panelist from our event. Anjum is a public affairs strategist, media commentator, and public speaker with over 10 years of experience. She currently is the Director of Youth Leadership and Policy Advocacy at Plan International Canada, and previously served as the National Director of Public Policy, Advocacy, and Strategic Communications at YWCA Canada. She holds a Master's of Public Health from the University of Toronto and a Certificate in Sustainable Business Strategy from Harvard Business School.
6: When it comes to climate and climate vulnerability, uh, women and girls and gender diverse people are disproportionately impacted. And part of it is that climate change, climate vulnerability is a a threat multiplier. So in an unequal society where women uh, and uh, gender minorities are disadvantaged, Climate just adds another layer to that compounded disadvantage. So take, for example, you know, the example that Carla mentioned a bit earlier around uh, small island uh, developing states and perhaps the rise in floods, the rise in and vulnerability due to that. What does that mean for a young girl or young woman who's experiencing that? who will now potentially have challenges in terms of uh, fulfilling education, so disruptions to education, will have impacts on access to employment, will perhaps also have challenges around accessing sexual and reproductive health services. So we can see how climate and climate change and climate disasters are actually making it difficult for that person to realize their full human rights. So we're seeing that climate is this threat multiplier. And we're also seeing this in the context of COVID. Uh, so one of the earlier pieces of work that I did during the pandemic is looking at the gendered impacts of the, the uh, gendered impacts of this pandemic on people across Canada, especially on uh, young women in particular. So, you know, one of the things that we saw in Canada even is that Gen Z women make up 2.5% of Canada's labour force, but experience 17% of the job losses. So, you know, that is what's happening right now with the pandemic, but now add on climate Right? And add on the fact that, for example, in British Columbia, we were seeing a lot of disruptions to people's employment access. So we're seeing that not only is climate on its own a threat multiplier, but in the context of COVID, it is further compounding those concerns. What I wanted to share and and Carla talked about this is is that we can't just be gender aware. We have to really push towards being gender transformative. And that means uh, when it comes to different types of climate solutions, That means on the different types of things that may be negotiated, for example, at CSW. And one of the potential interventions that, you know, in the work that we do at Plan International Canada is not focused on enough is the power of education to really advance gender transformative climate action. And what what do I mean by this? So when we talk about being gender transformative, it means looking at the unequal power relations. It looks at not just you know, addressing something through a band-aid solution, but really looking at the root causes of inequity and patriarchy. And what's really exciting about education as a, a solution that we should also consider when it comes to climate action is that it helps to address what Julie said around that power, uh, that passion power gap. When there is more education, there's access to greater leadership and participation later on in life and early on in life as well. It's something that helps to realize all of the different human rights that people have access to, including sexual and reproductive health rights. It also, when we think about what COVID has done to our economy and where we need to go as a society, when we look at the importance of the green economy, education is going to be critical to that. So we see that, education is something uh, where it creates not only impacts in a person's individual life, you know, in terms of realizing their full human rights, in terms of leadership and participation, in terms of accessing the green economy, it also has a collective impact. And so we actually see there's research that shows that for every year of education that a girl in particular receives, that actually increases her country's resilience to climate change. So we're actually seeing that connection between education and investing in girls education in particular, and being more resilient to climate change and being uh, more, uh, you know, reducing the climate vulnerability of uh, of the nation. So that's something as well that we'd love to see, for example, in some of the upcoming conversations at UNCSW, but generally speaking in the broader climate action agenda, And that's something that leads to that gender transformative. So it's not enough to be gender aware. It's also critical to move towards that gender transformation.
5: As you have no doubt understood by now, climate change and gender are intimately related. As Anjum explained, climate change is a threat multiplier. Therefore, it deepens the inequalities between genders. Through CSW, I have heard countless women from different countries, backgrounds, and ages telling us about the ways that climate change will affect them more profoundly. From well-established cases of women in sub-Saharan Africa having to walk longer and longer times to get water for their families, to the women in the southern United States who are more likely to die during hurricane season, to indigenous women land offenders in South America being disproportionately targeted by narco-traffickers in industry to try to silence their demands. Even pregnant women in Ukraine are suffering the consequences of the degradation of their territory as chemicals and other toxic fumes are released into the air when bombs crash into buildings and roads. The effects that this will have, compounded with the lack of access to maternity services, is not yet known, but future generations will pay the price. When asked about how they felt about the future of gender equality and climate change, nearly all of our survey respondents answered that they felt stressed, worried, or discouraged. And it is not difficult to understand why. I felt the same going to this conference. However, attending CSW 66 switched my attitude into a cautiously optimistic one, for two reasons. First, it was empowering to see women share their experiences with sexism and climate advocacy. Not only was it a great learning opportunity to get other viewpoints from outside those of our western bubble, but it was also liberating to see women say their piece about how they felt. Conversations very often got quite emotional as activists, scholars, and more, allow themselves to express their true feelings towards topics that they're devoting their lives to. Second, and even more empowering, was to learn from what women are doing to fix the problem. The angles by which to tackle the intersection between climate change and gender are infinite. And for every problem, there was a woman out there trying to fix it. Despite often lacking the adequate resources, women were out there pushing for more action to be taken to save our planet. While issues certainly remain, it is by empowering women's leadership that we can find a path forward. We can debate endlessly about what problem to fix first. Is it fixing the water supply, increasing food security, improving disaster resistance plants, and the list goes on. However, just as we try to be intersectional in our feminism, we should aim to be intersectional in our climate activism. That means involving as many people from the entire gender spectrum in discussion, especially women and gender diverse peoples, but also using their expertise to tackle a wide ranging of issues in synergy. As our survey indicates, different people want to prioritize different issues from biodiversity to air pollution to helping climate refugees. In my humble opinion, it is quite useless to pitch one problem as more important than the other. The earth functions based on the circularity principle. So if one thing breaks down, the whole ecosystem is affected and our ecosystem currently has a lot of cracks. It is through multilateral forums, such as CSW, that we can learn about the big picture and try to find where we want to contribute. Women must also work together across many different fields to understand how their actions can reverberate far beyond what they thought possible. Only by utilizing these platforms can we begin to create transnational advocacy networks and make some change worldwide.
7: Welcome back everyone, we're excited to share our last topic with you. This is Maitland and I'm the head delegate to YDC's delegation to CSW66. I'm a law student at Queen's University and previously did my undergrad in Ottawa, which is my hometown. Most of my experience lies in government and nonprofit work, and I've been lucky to work on a number of women's and gender equality initiatives. In particular, much of my recent experience has been in the areas of sexual and reproductive health and rights as well as preventing gender-based violence. I've also always been interested in global affairs and diplomacy, so CSW seemed like the perfect fit. I've known about and admired YDC's work for quite a while, so I was really excited to get involved as a delegate last year. As head delegate, I've been able to work across our initiatives, including our panel event, written statement, stakeholder meetings, and engagement with other delegations and groups. Throughout this work, we've been lucky to hear from other young people, as well as others further in their careers, about their experiences working in international affairs and advocacy, especially in the areas of climate action and gender equality. They have great pieces of advice for us, and we can't wait to share some of those from our panel event with you. To conclude our event, we asked our panelists, what are the next issues that we should be tackling moving forward? And what would your advice be to young people interested in getting involved in advocacy work? Here's Anjum with her insight.
6: There is no shortage of challenges. There are so many things uh, that are things that our policymakers are grappling with, and they're looking for solutions. They're looking for ideas. They're looking at how we can not only address it through things like technology, but social innovation, through uh, addressing unequal power relations, There's so many different ways to contribute. And I think a really powerful space to connect on is at the municipal level. So I sit on the board of Toronto Environmental Alliance, and we do a lot of work around climate action at the city level, because we really see the important role that cities and specifically municipal governments play in our day-to-day life. That is the level of government that is closest to the people that impacts their day-to-day activities. And so that's an area that also is uh, ripe for climate action. Uh, The city of Toronto was part of the 100 cities initiative around resilient cities. And so there's also this great community that's starting to build city to city to city around climate action, around resilience, around adaptation, around mitigation. So that's another area, an arena where we need young people, where we need underrepresented groups taking action. And also just speaking about, uh, the municipality, it's also a place that employs people. It's also a place that has incredible financial resources. So there's also an opportunity to look at things like social procurement. How does, uh, you know, a government, but then also looking at your organization, how can you actually leverage your financial resources to take greater, greater action on, uh, not only climate, but also gender equality, and also addressing uh, social inequalities. So that's something I would really encourage people to take a look at as, you know, an arena that's closer to home, but has also global implications. I think we also need to realize that the only thing that's certain now, especially in this post and during COVID era, is uncertainty, right? And so really thinking about how do you future-proof not only Um, your organizations, but your institutions, really looking at what's next. Technology is part of it, but also some of the demographic changes that Carla mentioned. So this is something where every single part of society is going to be transformed, whether it's by COVID, whether it's by climate change, but more and more, Something else that's on the horizon is the fact that there's more humanitarian crisis now than ever before, since at least 1945. So that's another part of the landscape we need to be keeping our eye on. Um, And we're seeing this right now with daily reports about what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, And that's something that I think is not just a blip, it's something that's gonna be a more constant in our day-to-day life.
3: Here's Julie. Before I jump into my answers, I'll give a huge plus repeat for, for Angie's comment about engaging in your municipality in your city. We talked about the challenge of accessing multilateral engagement and also the challenge of them actually implementing all of the grant promises that are agreed upon there. And it really starts locally. Um, so huge plus for that. Um, but what we're going to see over the next little bit, I think we're going to see a bit of a confrontation between a lot of the sustainability talk, the uh, gender diverse talk, but more specifically on climate, all of this hot air we've seen of everyone getting on board for climate change more at the corporate level, um, because I think at the individual level, everyone's quite genuine there um, and the solutions that we actually need to put forward. Um, And I think that's a genuine lack of understanding in some individuals or in some organizations, but what we really need to drive forward appropriate climate action, so I would say to anyone in this audience that if you look, if you look at something that seems like maybe that's greenwashing, maybe they don't really get exactly the extent of what we need to do to move forward on climate action, that's a huge role young people can play. It's not a burden we should bear, but it's one that we're finding ourselves having to take on, which is calling out when something is on the right track, but not quite good enough yet. And I think that's really what we're going to have to see over the next five years if we want to meet our global climate goals. Um, On the more positive side uh i would go back to a point that carla mentioned about you know if we're not invited to the decision-making table we create our own spaces and i think that's a huge benefit to youth work is that we can create these movements where we create power out of out of something that looks like nothing at the start but we're able to amplify that into really um prominent prominent conversations and prominent voices where we're able to raise uh, the perspectives of young people. And then lastly, something that I would hope to see is a more whole of government, whole of society movement towards a just climate transition. So that includes um, a just transition for women, girls, and gender diverse individuals. That includes a just transition for workers and communities who are being displaced by um, the transition off of fossil fuels or affected Um, by any other aspect of the climate transition. And I think that's what we really need to focus on, moving from climate action on its own to making sure that climate justice is synonymous and fully integrated with any type of climate action, whether it's at the individual, government, or corporate level.
7: And here's Anjum back to elaborate and share her advice for young people.
6: Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, there is this thinking that, I can't really make change until I get that position or I finish this or I finish that. But I want to say that you are completely and fully capable of making an impact. Now you are, connected and also very much involved in different communities and different networks that can be leveraged for that collective action. So really, I would say lead before you have a title. That's not necessary. In fact, that's actually where you can maybe make the biggest impact because you're directly closest to the issue. I think I would also say really the power of skills-based volunteerism. So in addition to folks, uh, you know, engaging in, uh, you know, scholarly pursuits, maybe doing research or engaging um, in higher education, it's also important to figure out what are the skills that are necessary for systemic change? And one of the places that I think we need to see more young people, we need to see more women, we need to see more gender diverse youth is specifically around uh, strategic communications and media relations. Really, it's critical right now When we think about where change happens, it happens on the airwaves, it happens on the in the newspapers, it happens in those columns and op-eds, and that's actually a place where women and youth are underrepresented. Um, An incredible organization that does work in this space is Informed Opinions. They have amazing workshops. It really is a fantastic place to get not only the skills and the confidence, but also the community. One of the things that they do, which is quite interesting, is a database that they have created for journalists in Canada and globally that looks at uh, incredible, uh, diverse experts on different issue areas so they can start to address that gap where, you know, who actually is quoted in the media, who's actually interviewed, really diversifying that. So I'll put the link in the chat, but really encourage folks to engage in that space because that's also an important arena for change.
7: Let's hear from Carla on her advice for youth.
6: I would say um, to be
2: uncomfortable. And that uh, equals with what Andrew was saying. Um, I think climate action uh, a lot of times is is very, we don't really have a very diverse idea of the solutions that are needed to tackle climate change. And the face of climate action are often the same. So if you feel like you don't belong, if you feel like your experience is not valid, well, you have to be uncomfortable um you have to be confident enough to really go against that internal feeling and in any experience, any um, you know, well, any live experience is valid. So I would really encourage people to be uncomfortable. And another thing also, when it comes to being uncomfortable, I, I think for people of color, particularly particularly for women of color, is to start being interested by things that are not necessarily appealing. Um, I was never really interested in energy. I, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you how I got interested in that Um, I got given a foul at work and I've never thought about energy projects and I got so passionate about it and I was very, um, you know, disappointed to see that a lot of the the green economy talks usually don't involve people of color because we're usually not um, seen in certain programs or certain fields. So be uncomfortable to do things that are different because this is how you're going to get different results. So be uncomfortable, study things that are, you know, that you didn't know before, Um, think outside the box. And I think this is really how we can drive diversity in climate action is to encourage people to do things differently and to things that don't necessarily appeal to them uh, at first sight.
7: And finally, Julie
3: again, to close us off. I would say the most important advice to get engaged on these issues is to not be afraid to see yourself as an activist and also not think that you have to reach a certain level of activity to be one. Um, and I'm speaking here from personal experience. When I was younger, I thought, you know, I'm not doing enough to be called a feminist or an environmentalist. Um, you know, I'm not out, for example, protesting every single day of the week. Um, and so I felt that I hadn't necessarily earned that title. But what I would encourage for all of you is to recognize that you are a feminist, you are an environmentalist, and to advocate for those perspectives in every single piece of your of your day-to-day, because it's not just those direct actions. Those are certainly critical and have made a huge positive transition in both the feminist and environmentalist agenda. Um, but in your everyday conversations that you're having, whether it's in your classes, in your volunteerism, or even in your workplace, just by bringing these perspectives forward to people who potentially have not been exposed to them before, who don't think in that way naturally, you're making a huge change because I really believe in kind of person to person change, right, that's how you create a larger movement. And if you're able to share this perspective with a single person, open their eyes to the existential threat of climate change or the urgency of of gender parity, you're able to shift one perspective who then amplify into others. So I would encourage you to claim that activist title in everything that you do, in all of the small pieces of your conversations and your work, and to wear that badge with a whole lot of pride.
7: All in all, CSW 66 was a really unique experience that I'm so thankful for. Not only was I able to attend the commission on the status of women and learn from feminists from across the world, I also got to engage with other passionate young people and experienced professionals in the fields. As someone who doesn't have that much background knowledge on climate change, it was really interesting to hear about all of the different intersections between climate, youth, and gender equality. Women and girls face more effects of climate change, which exasperate different issues that they face because of their gender. I'm really grateful to have heard from women at CSW on this issue, including women from across the world that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to meet and especially women from the global south whose countries deal with many more of the effects of climate change. I was able to hear about climate's intersections with topics I was well-versed in, like sexual and reproductive health and rights, as well as areas that I had never learned about, and it was a really great learning experience in that way. I'm also thankful for everyone that we were able to meet and work with outside of the official event. People from government, diplomacy, and advocacy Who took the time to speak with us and share their experiences. This really rounded out our experience and allowed us to better understand all of the moving pieces that go into something like CSW. It was also a great reminder of how many people are happy to spend some time sharing their experiences with those who are starting out in their careers. I'm so proud of what our delegation has been able to do, including our written statement, survey, panel event, contributing to recommendations, collaborating with other organizations, and participating in other parallel events and forums. I'm so lucky to have shared this experience with such incredible and passionate young women, Sydney, Paige, and Lucy, and I can't wait to see where they go next.
0: It's Sydney again, here to offer some of my own reflections on CSW. But first, I want to say a huge thank you to all of you for listening in and joining us on this discussion. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed it so far. Overall, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have served as a YDC delegate. Since I'm early on in my academic and professional journey, I experienced accelerated learning opportunities as our team worked through high-level policy discussions, project management, communications and outreach, and, of course, event facilitation. I was initially motivated to apply to YDC, to engage with the conference topics that I heard about, and apply my grassroots experiences to this new and exciting world of international affairs. As a delegate, my expectations for this were exceeded. YDC provided a platform for us to network with key officials and thought leaders, as you've already heard, to develop our professional skills, and organize events, statements, or social media content with considerable creative liberty. One of my key takeaways from the conference was the dichotomy between vision and action-oriented statements. I found that the vast majority of our calls, whether public, UN-level sessions, or private stakeholder consultations, fell into the former category. The aim was often to inspire, promote certain ideals, or share specialized or localized knowledge of the topics. It was great to hear everyone's stories, but next time I'd also challenge myself to seek out more engagements with other youth delegates and collaborate on clear, actionable goals in the aftermath and during the conference. As we know, and as this conference has so clearly taught us, youth voices are critically important in these discussions of social justice, policy reform, and environmental action. It was uplifting to witness many other youth from around the world getting involved and pushing for meaningful action at CSW 66. As Canadian representatives, it is important that we continue to contribute to and amplify this work on the international stage, because our collective future depends on it. So as you pull out your earbuds and move forward in your day, I would encourage you to take up the same goal that I'm striving towards. What will you do with this information? How will you turn this into an action-oriented podcast Will you embrace the title of activist and talk to friends, family, and coworkers, as Julie mentioned? Will you get involved with your municipal government, as Anjum suggested? Or will you seek to center conversations of equity and equality, as Carla encouraged us to do? Whatever it is, we wish you well. These changes will not come quickly, but through solidarity, passion, and empathy, I hope you feel as encouraged for the road ahead as we do. We encourage you to stay connected with YDC and continue engaging in the world of multilateralism and international affairs, because we all belong in these spaces and conversations. And lastly, we welcome back Maitland to reiterate our appreciation for you all for supporting our YDC delegation and to offer some concluding thoughts.
7: We want to thank everyone who made this experience possible including the YDC team, and in particular Marissa Fortune, as well as Ceylon Kyra who helped us with this podcast. Thank you so much to Beyond the Headlines for continuing this partnership and highlighting our work on this broadcast. We also wanna thank everyone who took the time out of their busy schedules to meet with us, including the Office of the Minister of Women, Gender Equality and Youth, Senator Mary Lou McFedron, Mary Pierre Wade at the Office of the Ambassador of Women, Peace and Security, Catherine McKenna and her team, Bob Ray, and others at Canada's permanent mission to the UN, including Cassandra Murray and Greg Dempsey. Thank you to our panelists who are featured on this podcast, Anjum Sultana, Carla anid Guillaume, and Julie Siegel. We're so lucky to have heard from you all and are so proud of what you're doing as YBCLM. Thank you so much to Plan International and Plan International Canada for their support throughout our work for CSW, especially the advocacy and youth engagement teams at Plan Canada. Thank you to the youth gender activists at UN Women, including YDC alum Erica Dupuis, for allowing us to contribute to your youth recommendations for CSW and participate in your youth forum. Thank you to Mediators Beyond Borders International Who we collaborated with on a parallel event at NGOCSW. We appreciate you continuously highlighting youth voices in your work. Thank you as well to the United Nations Association in Canada for collaborating on our survey for Canadian youth and for your work in facilitating engagement among Canadian delegates and youth delegates from across the world. Thank you to the youth who attended our panel event, filled out our survey, or have been following along with us during this process. This is for you, and we're so grateful to represent your interests at CSW 66.
0: You've been listening to a special edition of Beyond the Headlines, presented to you by the CSW 66 delegation of the Young Diplomats of Canada. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, or the Young Diplomats of Canada. Be sure to check out all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.